Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer and Me, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBTQ plus experience. My guest today is Michaela Griffo, one of the early members of the National Organization for Women, the preeminent women's rights organization in the U.S. in the late 1960s, and a longtime LGBTQ plus activist starting in 1970. I've been fascinated by the journeys of many of my guests, but Michaela's especially affected me. I am really honored to have uh, Michaela Griffo here with us today. Michaela is a visual artist and longtime civil rights activist uh, who's one of the few remaining links between the LGBTQ community of today and the early one that arose out of Stonewall. Uh, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Bammer and Me. And let's let's get back to your beginnings. Okay. <laughs> uh, what kind of upbringing did you have that led you to become an artist as well as civil rights activist? What happened to, to spur you towards a life of activism? And what role did discrimination, whether it be racial, gender, religious, or otherwise, play in that process? Okay, well, that's a lot of ground to cover, so I will try and do it. Um, I grew up in a very, very uh, strict Catholic home. My mother, I'm a first-generation American. My mother was born in Italy. Um, and I came, I was, I came from Rochester, New York, and this is where my understanding of prejudice began. Rochester, New York was what, and younger people are going to have to look this up, was a restricted community because of Eastman Kodak. The Eastman Kodak company ruled Rochester, New York. And what a restricted community meant was because we were Catholic, you know, Catholics lived in one area. We were not allowed to join country clubs. We were not allowed to even use certain public pools. Uh, Jewish people, same thing. They had, they were restricted to certain things. Blacks live in a certain neighborhood. Um, and so the way that I, the thing that I think really influenced me so much as a young child is why I was, I was in high school when it happened. Rochester, New York, is the city that gave race riots its name. In 1964, um, Rochester, New York, was torn apart by race riots that lasted for weeks. And the National Guard came. Um, the, the Governor Rockefeller called in the National Guard, so we lived with them, curfews, um, and... What I came to understand was, and this is what would influence me later uh, when I understood how to organize a community and how not to organize a community. One of the things that happened was a man named Saul Alinsky, who was a community organizer from Chicago, came to Rochester, New York because of Eastman Kodak, but he focused on that blacks could not get jobs and what he didn't understand was that no one who was not a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant could get jobs at Kodak. And that, that Kodak had a firm you know, grip on everybody that lived in Rochester. Actually, the only reason that we were allowed to live in a Protestant neighborhood was because my father was a very respected surgeon. Um, but other than that, uh, that was my introduction to racial riots and, and understanding how 
an outside person could come in who did not understand the community at all. And I even see some of that going on today where instead of looking at the entire community, only looked at one aspect of that community, which caused even because the entire Jewish neighborhood, all the Jewish businesses were destroyed because in Rochester, the Jews and the blacks lived right next to each other. And so you had a lot of resentment and it didn't change anything. What changed was when um, Xerox, which was founded by a man who was Catholic. I went to school with his daughters. So anyway, he hired blacks, he hired you know Jews, he hired Catholics, and that's the kind of thing that brought the change. But it was pretty wild, uh, you know, living through that summer with the National Guard and the curfews, and you know, seeing and uh, Rochester, New York, just recently was in the paper again for riots. So it's a pretty riotous town. <laughs> I had basically a, I went to a very conservative uh, a con, and I went to a very all girls convent school. And uh, so that was pretty much my upbringing was being, and it's really funny because I, you know, later talk about my, my Orthodox Jewish boyfriend, I was still in high school and I was very intelligent. And they had started this program called the Joe Berg Society where brilliant high school students were allowed to go to college. And they would pick me up with my little convent school uniform on, and I would go to the University of Rochester and that's where I met the man that I actually would marry, uh, wanted to marry, didn't have had a chance. But so I, I've learned a lot about uh, stereotypes and uh, whatever. That's so I had a, I had a pretty interesting beginning. Were you active as in high school, or you just observed all that? Oh, we just there was no. I mean, convents. My convent school. We were not allowed. <laughs> forget it. I mean. <laughs> There was no talk of anything. I mean, we were expected to grow up, get married, have children. And if we did have a career, it was as a teacher or a nurse, as nothing that even resembled, you know, what, what young women today are allowed to become. We were just, that was it. <laughs> well, my next question was to ask you to discuss, as you have with me, your, history, your theory of change, which you started to broach a moment ago, and how you learned to create real change and what helped you to recognize the importance of understanding your enemy. But I'd like you to filter into that, if you will, how you kind of got involved personally as an activist, particularly since I know you also got an MSW in social work. So you've kind of been oriented in that direction from early on, but, but how did that change into becoming part of your being? What changed me, uh, by the way, I didn't get my master's in social work until I was 45 years old. So I but what, what the beginnings for me were when I was 16 years old, I went to Harlem with a friend of mine and she got an illegal abortion. And I was, she would have died if it hadn't been for this black cab driver that got us back to her place. And that she had a friend who was a nurse that we called. And that was the beginning of my involvement. It was 1968 of my involvement in things, this, 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 is a, this has to change. And so right at that time, there was the very, very beginnings of femi feminist ideas 
Shulamus Firestone wrote a book and founded a group called the Red Stockings. So in 1968, I was living with what was my fiance at that time. He was in medical school. I was about to go to Pratt Institute. Um, and so I joined the Red Stockings. Uh, we would stand in Sheridan Square handing out leaflets about to change both the abortion laws and the other thing that we were very involved in, and a lot of young women have no idea about this, but if you were raped and you brought the rapist to trial, you had to have a corroborating witness. In other words, in order to charge somebody, a man with rape, you had to have somebody who said, yes, I was right there, this man raped this woman. That was the law. So I was arrested, my first arrest was protesting that law. Um, and the rest of it was that we were, we were, we would march in the streets. We were handing out leaflets. So by the time I got involved in the gay movement, I was used to being arrested, spit on, insulted. Um, but I was adamant that no woman should ever have to go through what my friend went through. So not only, um, I, this was my preparation for becoming a full-blown activist, is that, of course, what was going on, both in Ohio, Kent State, you know, the University of Michigan, the SDS was founded, the anti-war, you know, all of my friends, my male friends, you know, were about to be drafted. They were, you know, there was the burning of the draft cards, there were the marches against the war, there were the civil rights movement was, you know, we were right near Detroit. Um, so, you know, and having come from Rochester, New York, I was, I was already, you know, I, I had already experienced this. As for, a, those, for those who aren't aware, SDS is Students for Democratic Society. Uh, yes. It was one of the early, uh, it was of, one of the very early, let's change the world, uh, radical activists of right. all stripe. I mean, it was primarily, again, white men. But then you had a very dangerous group by the end of the 60s called the Weathermen, who not only wanted to, you know, end the war, but they wanted to bomb the Pentagon. And, you know, th there were, and there were, you know, these people who were arrested on, you know, holding up armored trucks to raise money. You there also had the Symbionese Liberation Army, remember? There was a whole bunch of... Liberation Army. I mean, there were all these offshoots. And then, of course, as the 60s progressed, the civil rights movement morphed into the Black Panthers and the Muslims. The, uh, uh, not, I mean, not the religion, but, you know, the Black Muslims, uh, you know, what Louis Farrakhan. And that, you know, the, and so we had the very radical and, you know, the, and the Panthers, because they felt that Martin Luther King hadn't gone far enough. So this passive, you know, you know, and, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, we all admired Dr. King, but it was this whole thing about enough talk. Let's, my generation wanted change. And so by the time I got to New York and went with my friend to, you know, when she got the abortion, um, I'm like, this is, no, this and, and, and of course, went to a rape trial and got arrested for protesting. 
I thought this law was insane that what woman is going to have a, a person standing there? But that was the law. And interestingly enough, when I was arrested, um, if I had, it had, it never went to trial because they eventually, they let me out when they got a note from Bella Obzug. Uh, Bella Obzug's apparently called one of the people in the law justice, I don't know what, and said that if they brought me to trial on this, she would be my lawyer. Well, that's all they needed to hear. Well, Bella, that was Bella was a congresswoman from New York yeah, and, she was and the a very devout feminist, right? Yes. You, so you moved here after Michigan to yeah. live in the I were living on Horatio Street in the West Village, and I went uh, to Pratt Institute in uh, September of 1968. So the theory of change and know your enemy. Right. Well, no, explain that a little bit. Well, the theory of change is, for me anyway, was don't ever expect anybody outside to fight your fight. And that became very true the, the farther we got into things, that your allies may not necessarily be what you are. And if they're not, they're not going to help you. And it, it, it went so far as to when I you know, worked on Tom Duane's first campaign, um, my attitude was always, don't vote gay-friendly vote gay. And I also learned a lot from when Saul Alinsky, who was a community organizer in Chicago, came to Rochester, New York, not understanding that community at all, and left it in shambles. He went back to Chicago and left the people of Rochester, New York, to put the pieces back together. And there was a lot of anger. And I, to this day, I think that, you know, I, I just think there's a lot of open racism in Rochester, New York, from the people that just, you know, it, it just it split the whole community. And so from that, I learned don't don't ever have somebody professional organizer come in, no matter what it is. All the people that I got involved with, whatever group it was, because later on, I can tell you that the government sent you know, agitators into the gay liberation front, into the radical lesbians uh, to, you know, stir up things. And I, I truly believe some of that is still going on today. So explain the, the value of knowing your enemy. Well, you just have to know that, you know, you can't depend on somebody who says, well, I'll, uh, don't worry, I work in this office or this government or whatever, I'll take care of this. It had, for my generation, it had to be bodies in the street. No more of this, oh, well, yes, well, maybe someday they'll change the law. If you vote for this person, uh, I'm going to change the rape laws. If you vote for me, I'm going to, you know, gays, blah, 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 blah. No, we're going to do it ourselves. And that's why students took over universities. They took over, you know, we... The whole by the time, you know, the anti-war. Look at the look at the anti-war movement. My God, there were protests in every single town, and it just stopped the war. Remember the concept of sit-ins? Oh yeah, sit-ins. That's what I'm saying. We took over until the boycotts, all of it. That's how we learned how to make change. You know, you go, you do whatever is going to stop the enemy 
whoever that enemy is. So your life really started to change dramatically in 1969. <clears throat> Obviously, you were living here with your boyfriend slash fiance. Uh, it was around the time Stonewall broke out. You want to also a member of the National Organization for Women by 1968. Betty Friedan had started, you know, the National Organization for Women, and I was one of the first 12 members of the National Organization. Kate Millett and I were the education committee. So. Which will be very instrumental in a moment when we hear your story of what happened to that. So tell us what happened in 1969 to you. Well, what happened was um, I was, you know, as I said, I was planning to marry and have a very n normal life um, in those days. Uh, marry Peter, going to have children and, you know, move to the suburbs. Who knew? Of course, we both love New York, so I doubt we would move to the suburbs. Um, and so we decided we were going to tell his family that we were going to get married. We were engaged. I had never met his family because he was an Orthodox Jew. And um, so we got all dressed up. He put on his, what he called his bar mitzvah suit. And we went to Sheepshead Bay, which is where his uh, Ocean Parkway. And we went there and the door opened up and on the couch, on this big couch was sitting both of his grandmothers, his mother and her two sisters. And in unison, they all looked up and said, aha, shiksa. Well, I had no idea what that word meant. I had never even heard that word. Um, and so, I, you know, Peter gave me $10. He said, here, go downstairs, get in a cab. He said, and I'll be home later. And so the cab drivers in those days in Brooklyn, especially used to be these little old Jewish men who put their kids through city college, you know, and, so I said to this cab driver, I said, I said, excuse me, I said, can you tell me what does the word shiksa mean? And he said, who called you that? I said, my fiance's family. He said, my dear, it means there isn't going to be a wedding. <laughs> That's what that means. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, Peter and I, that was in, uh, that was in December of 1968. And so by 1969, when Stonewall occurred, we were about to separate. Um, we heard about this riot with the gays, but you know, even though I shared a, it Pratt, we had these studios where we worked and I shared this one, like it was like they were like large cubicles with these two women who were lovers. And I was not homophobic. I just didn't, it hour at all. I didn't understand what two women, why they would be attracted to each other. Um, but, I, you know, again, I, Pratt Institute, a hotbed of lesbianism and gays. I mean, what art school isn't, but I was oblivious to it because I was so in love with Peter. Well, anyway, um, so when Stonewall occurred, for me, it was just like being, a, you know, a red stocking and being in the National Organization for Women. Great change the gays they're gonna get their right you know everybody's like great no matter what it was you're like horrific panthers everything so that's basically what what started the big change was when peter moved out now the other thing that started huge change was a big influence on me right after stonewall was that there was a publication called rat on the lower east side it had been a porno rag and then these you know like um radical groups took it over and the, the rat or the rad rat like a rat and right. a rat so what happened was 
the weathermen and all these underground people, well, the, the cover, the first day I went to work there because they needed somebody to do paste-ups and mechanicals. And of course, I knew how to do that. So I, I one of the Red Stockings women asked me to go, would you do it? I said, sure, no problem. The cover said, Jane, you left the water running. And that was Jane Elpert. She had gone underground. That was the last publication when it was owned by the weather people, whatever. Now it became a feminist publication. So one of the writers there was Martha Shelley, who was, you know, one of the people, as I said, right after Stonewall, like the very next day, she and Ellen Broidy began planning the GLF and the first march, which would- GLF is Gay Liberation Front. The Gay Liberation Front. So here I am, I'm doing my little paste up in mechanicals, and there's all these les radical lesbians and whatever. Um, so that's how I got to know some of them through- my work with the red stockings. Now, what would happen through red stockings also, is we used to meet at the Washington Square Methodist Church to plan our actions and our pamphlets and everything. And the Washington Square Methodist Church on West 4th Street was a hotbed of radicals. Um, everybody, the Panthers met there, you know, all these, like the Young Lords, all the groups would have, you know, their meetings at the, at the Washington Square Methodist Church. They also had a group for people who had green cards and who wanted to become citizens. So one night I'm coming out of my red stocking meeting and I'm approached by this very attractive, tall, blonde, Swedish woman. And she asked me if I want to go out for coffee. So I'm assuming that <laughs> I would find out much later that she'd been cruising me for months. Um, that I assumed she wanted to know about the red stockings and the feminists and all that. So we went out for coffee and, you know, we started talking that I was an art student, whatever. And she said, oh, would you like to go to Andy Warhol's party tonight? And I said, wow, yes, because her best friend was Viva, the actress Viva. So, you know, we, we ended up going to Andy. It was a great party, I'll tell you. Um, and then, of course, you know, one coffee led to more coffee, dinner, and she would constantly be traveling because she was Eileen Ford's top model. And so, you know, when she would come home, we'd have, you know, whatever, go to dinner. So this went on for like six months and I had no idea we were dating. I just knew she was interesting and exciting and she was very interested in the work I was doing with the, with the feminists and all of that. By now I'm in a consciousness raising group that Susan Brown Miller who was in another group called the New York Radical Feminists, said, oh, no, you have to get into a consciousness-raising group. So I'm with all this, not only a feminist consciousness, with the Red Stockings, the National Organization for Women. Kate Millett was in the closet in those days. I was, you know. So everybody was, a lot of people were closeted. Um, and so anyway, uh, after six months of dating, which I had no idea we were doing. One night she said to me, some night you come and stay with Agneta, yes? And I thought she meant, because she had a loft before anybody had a loft. She lived over on Great Jones Street in this fabulous loft with the curved windows and the plants hanging. And it was like, I, I thought she meant like a pajama party. I didn't know, still so naive. And she kissed me. I said, oh yeah, I would like that. And she kissed me. And I just tell people, I never even called bisexual. <laughs> Yeah, that kiss was oh. it turned you, huh? Oh my God! It was like, oh, it, I, it was like 
you know, even when I was with Peter and we had, you know, I consider a very nice sex life. You know, you would read in books or whatever, you know, all these you know, orgasm blah, 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 and I thought, well, you know, and then I would start to read that women reach their sexual peak at 30. And here I'm like, I'm only 20 years old. And, um, and I thought, well, I'll, when I'm 30, then, you know, well, when she kissed me, I knew I never had it away till I was 30. Was, <laughs> this is it, folks. This is what's going on here. So then what happened is, of course, I go to my consciousness raising group and I think, oh, these women are all going to be so you know, excited that now I'm in love with a woman. And well, it was quite the opposite because I was not at all familiar with the gay community and with what it was like to grow up gay um, and have to be hiding it. They're like, well, now you're going to lose your apartment. They're going to throw you out of your apartment. You're never going to get a job. Your parents are going to disown you. You know, the sky is falling. I'm like, my first reaction was this, like with the abortion up in Harlem, this is unacceptable. I said to them, I am the same person I was six months ago when I was going to marry Peter. And now you're telling me that because I love a woman that I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be blah, 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 blah. I went home that night. It was a Wednesday night. Got the, the um, village voice. And I looked in the back and it said, Gay Liberation Front. That was all I needed to see. I went to the very next meeting. They used to meet over at the, um, uh, at the there was a church, Holy Apostles Church on 29th. Man, I was there. It was, it was wonderful. It was like hippies, you know, it, it was drag queens. It was like, it was like the most incredible. And we did become the most incredible group of people and this ragtag group of people changed the world. I said, this is unacceptable. And I was ready to do whatever I needed to do to, to stop this prejudice and these stereotypes about gay people. You know, maybe, I mean, you talked about what they threw at you as the things that you were gonna be risking. Maybe you should just describe briefly particularly for our younger members of the audience who aren't aware of what it really was like to be gay and lesbian if you didn't live in the village, for example, in 1969. It's still going on in Oklahoma. <laughs> so let's just get that straight. Right. Um, of course. I mean, when I, you know, when I would later, of course, read about what happened to, you know, first of all, in the 60s, in the 50s, 40s, whatever, you could be arrested, of course, for being, you would lose your job immediately, no matter what you, where you work, you lose your job, you would be arrested. You, people could not, no bar could serve liquor to homosexuals. You couldn't dance anywhere together. Um, people's families, of course, disowned them. The worst part was when people would find out thinking their families maybe would have some sympathy, they were put in mental institutions. They were given shock treatment. They were given lobotomies. Um, it was horrendous. You were treated like a, a, not just a criminal, but a mentally insane criminal and shunned. And you just, so you, of course, if you were at all educated and you wanted a job, you had to hide who you were. 
And so this caused a lot of psychological problems for people. Um, it was hell. It was hell. When I think of what the people in the 30s, 40s, whatever, because in the 20s, apparently everything was like whoop-de-doo, both in Europe and in the United States. And then, you know, the commie, pinko, queer thing hit. That's for the first time I heard the word queer, because that's what, you know, it was always the three words together, commie, pinko, queer, that all gay people were either communists or socialists and were, you know, were a threat to this country. That's how Frank Kameny lost his job with a brilliant Harvard-educated man, lost his job with the government because he was gay. For no other reason. He, was, he lost his job because he was gay. So now that we've set the stage for what it was like, and you joined the Gay Liberation Front, which formed an amazingly cohesive activist and effective organization, you were part of the National Organization for Women. Did the Red Stockings cease to exist, or what happened with that? And I want to hear what what happened with NOW, the National Organization for Women. Your involvement with that, one of the first 12 members. I know a schism happened. I want you to explain how that occurred. Well, what happened is, is that Betty Friedan did not want the word lesbian. I mean, it was like the worst thing you could call a feminist was a lesbian. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> garlic in front of a vampire. Oh, a feminist, you're a lesbian. And so, of course, Betty didn't want anything to do with lesbians or, you know, even though when I joined um, Ivy Bottini, and I'm not outing her because she, you know, did come out eventually, was, you know, a closeted gay woman who was running the uh, National Organization for Women here in New York City. Um, the only person who was always an ally, and I love her dearly, even today, was Gloria Steinem. Gloria, you know, did not agree, of course, you know, with, with Betty, but Betty, you know, everything had to do with lesbians or gay. No, Betty did not. We were not part of that, even though as a national organization, it grew very quickly. I mean, I was one of the first 12 members, but it grew exponentially, you know, when they had that march down Fifth Avenue for women's equal pay and all, you know, it was an explosion. 1969, 1970 was an explosion of radical groups in New York City and throughout the country. But the basic thing that went out from New York and from Betty was no lesbians allowed. And so uh, I, I, when I joined the Gay Liberation Front, I, I resigned from the National Organization of Women and I wrote a letter letting them know why, that I could, I could not belong to an organization that would do this. Now, and, and Betty you know, called us the Lavender Menace. Now, that was a rather benign, you know, homophobic slur, but it was an article that Susan Brown Miller wrote. This is what I emphasized when I spoke at the New York Historic Society. It wasn't Betty Friedan that politicized massive quantities of lesbians. It was an article in March of 1970 that Susan Brown Miller wrote for the New York Times explaining the feminist movement and blah, 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 you know this burgeoning feminist movement in which she said that we were lavender, a lavender herring perhaps, but clearly, surely no clear and present danger. Well, Susan had been the person that got me involved in the 
consciousness raising group were the New York radical feminists. And there's a whole history between Susan and I, not sexually, we were, you know, we were friends and allies in the movement. As a matter of fact, they were, the day after that article came out, they were going to take, the New York radical feminists were going to take over the ladies' home journal. And I had designed the cover for them. So Monday morning comes, they're all taken over the what happened was I, I I was so furious with Susan for writing such a thing, lavender herring, that that Friday night, the Gay Liberation Front women had one of our dances, which we'll, we'll get into the, later. And I had made a T-shirt, a lavender T-shirt that with lettering that said lavender herring. And the women thought it was terrific. And we were so sick. I'm tired. Now, this is March. The big lavender menace action will happen two, uh, March, yeah, two months later. So sick of Betty and her attitude and all these feminists. Oh, lesbians are sick. They're blah, blah, blah. You know, man haters. Really, there were more man haters that were straight. They hated their husbands, I'm telling you. So anyway, I make this lavender herring T-shirt and, you know, Martha and a few, you know, Carla J and a few other the women, they see this t-shirt and they go, wow, this is great. But they decided that, you know, rather than lavender herrings, we were going to do an action. And so that was how the lavender menace action came about. We decided that we would actually wear, make and wear and Donna Gottschalk, who I don't know if you know Donna is, she's the one that made all these t-shirts in her bathtub and then they were like screening them and whatever. Mine is, my Lavender Menace t-shirt was the one that was hanging in the in the New York Historic Society at the, uh, when we had that big uh, exhibit. Stonewall 50. Yes, that, that, my, that was my Lavender Menace t-shirt which is in now the permanent collection of the New York Public Library's Gay and Lesbian. Um, so what happened with the Ladies' Home Journal in the end? You didn't show up? Did I didn't show up, and I let Susan know why. Yeah. And, I, and that's when I pretty much, I left the New York Radical Feminists. The Red Stockings uh, just kind of morphed in, a lot of the women that were in the Red Stockings kind of morphed into other uh, Things. Some of them were, went to work, who were black, went to work with the Panthers. Some went to uh, the Young Lords. Eventually, when the Salsa Soul Sisters was formed by Cassandra Grant, um, those were the women who were, like the way the radical lesbians was a cell of lesbians within the Gay Liberation Front. We were the women of the Gay Liberation Front. Now, what were some of the other cells? Star street act street street transvestite action revolutionaries, which was what Marsha and Sylvia started. Um, there were the radical Marcia Johnson and Sylvia Silva Rivera. Right. Then there were the radical fairies. There were oh there were there was one. They were all different. A lot of people had different. Some people wanted to move to the country and have you know. Other people, their whole thing was moving around the country and spreading word to other cities about the Gay Liberation Front. So basically we were one big group and an umbrella group for many actions that were planned by what we called 
cells within the, within the Gay Liberation Front. Um, in a moment, I want to move off the feminist movement more into the LGTB, but I'd like you just to explain the rest of the 70s decade. And I think that kind of culminated with a little bit of a, a healing at the end of the, uh, the 70s between the feminist movement and, and the lesbian uh, group or not? What happened was when we, what happened was we uh, took over the first, Betty planned the first Congress, to, the, the Congress to Unite Women. This big thing where all these feminists were going to get together at the school over on 17th Street. Now we got wind of it obviously, because some of the closeted women <laughs> were telling us about what was pl being planned. And I had worked backstage at, at, in school, so I knew how to switch off a light board. And so we decided we were going to do this lavender menace action, and we were going to take over the conference. And so, you know, the, all the, on the day when it happened, all these feminists came in, the auditorium was filled with them. And we were all there with our, you know, something over our shirts. And so the minute Betty goes <laughs> to the microphone, of course, bam, I slammed the lights off and the place is dark. So I waited a couple of, you know, a few seconds. I don't want them to really totally be freaking out. And so I put the lights back on and there's Martha Shelley. She's got the microphone and she's wearing her lavender menace t-shirt. And there's all these lavender menaces all throughout the audience. And that's where we said, if we want to talk about who we are and you know, we, we are women and we are feminists as well as you. And you know, enough with this stereotyping and whatever, we need to get to know each other and work together because we have marched for abortions. We have marched for all of the same causes that you care about. Um, so that was, you know, but Betty did not change her mind until Houston in 1970. That, that event that you disrupted was in 1971? No, it was 19, May of 1970. 70, okay. So it took from then until, I'm sorry I interrupted you, until what? 78 at the Houston Convention, where all, they came from all over the country, that we presented part of the platform that, that lesbians were feminists, and we demanded that the, the National Organization for Women not, you know, that they not separate us from, from themselves. And, and after that, you know, pretty much that was it. Now, it, it became a, a moot point after that, but there was a lot of fighting between 1970 and 1978, and Betty just, uh, you know, and like I say, I think the person most responsible for getting us, you know, to start talking with each other was Gloria Steinem. She's always been a great ally of the gay movement. And, you know, people call her lesbian. <laughs> she didn't care. That's what I loved about Gloria. She could have cared less. <laughs> so um, I want to go back uh, to Stonewall of uh, the riots of June 27th or whatever, 7th, 8th, 9th, 1969. You were living in the village with your then fiance, but on the verge of splitting up. Yes, we were, we're he left that, that or, no, he left in August, I'm sorry. Okay. August. So you're probably less than a mile away from the actual event where in your apartment. 
you didn't find out about it until the next day. I wouldn't find out what happened until I joined the Gay Liberation Front. I started talking to people like Marsha and Sylvia, Jim Farrar, people who were actually there. And Steve so Kennedy. how many months later did you join the GLF after Stonewall? Uh, December. Yeah. So basically, over the next year or two, you became active and immersed in the, the organizational infrastructure of the rising LGTB activist movement. Right. You were part of multiple civil rights organizations, and you got to know these two icons today. They're considered icons, uh, Sylvia Rivera. Stop you there. We did not call them civil rights organizations. There was a civil rights organization. We were social justice warriors. Gotcha. Big difference. We encompassed, we worked with civil rights organizations, but we were social justice warriors. Makes sense. So, and you became really friendly and got to know both Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera very well. I'll say we're great. And what I want to do is, uh, there's a lot of evolving narratives around Stonewall, what happened that night, who led it, how it went down. And I don't want in any way, and I know you don't want in any way, diminish anybody's participation or importance in those events. At the same time, some people have kind of been elevating Marsha and Celia to the status of having led the riots and throwing Molotov cocktails or bricks or whatever at the, the, the police. Can you tell me what you heard directly from both Marsha and Silvera about their participation in that evening? Yeah, I think there's been some pretty bad movies <laughs> made about Stonewall. My, you know, I say I knew Marsha and Sylvia. I, I knew Sylvia from even working with the Young Lords. That's how I met Sylvia before I was working with the Gay Liberation Front. But anyway, um, was it Marsha was having a birthday party and she was so drunk that she did make it down there. But it was early morning, if I remember correctly. Um, Sylvia was... Uh, doing her usual thing with her friends up in uh, Bryant Park. Sylvia, unfortunately, had a pretty bad heroin problem. And uh, so she was up there with her friends. She also did get down eventually. And, you know, it, but it was pretty much, you know, already it had been started. And um, And the other thing I would like to say is, the lesbian who was there was not Stormy. It was a woman named Marilyn Fowler. And I had made this very clear to historians that she was a woman who was rather psychotic. We used to have to throw her out of the Red Stockings meetings. She would come in and start ranting about men. So it didn't at all surprise me that she's the one who was, you know, hey, you guys, she's the one basically started the riot. Um, and so that's that's what I know that, you know, by the time Marsha and Sylvia got down there, it was pretty much, it had, you know, just exploded already. There were no, I, from other guys I knew, like Jerry Hoos, who was there, Tommy Lanigan Schmidt, um, that there were no cocktails thrown, there were no bricks thrown. What they were throwing were pennies at first, coppers. Here, here's your payoff, because they were paid by the mafia. 
And that's what was being thrown. And then I think there was somebody had lighter fluid or something, and they, they started a little fire in front of the door when the cops were, were in there. But it wasn't what has been, I guess, badly depicted in some of these uh, movies, like the one Stonewall, where it's all cisgender men. Uh, you know, no, it was a mixture of street kids. Some of them were people of color. Some of them were, you know, what they used to call uh, scare drag. Uh, that, that's something that uh, I think a, a young man at that time could describe to you more. And it was kind of almost like punk type thing. But and there were, you know, there were drag queens and people, you know, like that in the bar at the time who came out and they were arrested. Um, it was not what is what's being talked about today. Now, my feeling is knowing Marsha and knowing Sylvia, they were heroes to a big part of our community. They were the people that nobody gave a damn about, the people in prison, the people on the streets, because both Marsha and Sylvia had worked as prostitutes uh, or, you know, sex workers, I guess is the appropriate one. Um, you know, and so they really cared about those people. And if, they, if they're going to put up a monument, it's... It, that is what the monument should be. Not that they started Stonewall, because that's that's not fair to the people who did, that actually did start throwing the pennies and, you know, and really said, no, enough is enough. And I knew a lot of those men. So it's not fair to just say, oh yeah. Now I understand that everybody needs their heroes, but you can't have a hero at the expense of an entire community. Honor them for what they did for a segment of the community. And the other thing is that when they did start street action, street transvestite action revolutionaries, Bob Kohler, a cisgender white man and I, were the people who went down to that hovel on Second Street. I did all the electrical work so they'd have electricity because it's something I knew how to do. Bob, you know, got other people to come down. We painted it. We got furniture. The whole gay liberation front created that first clubhouse for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm as an aside, I aspire to have some sense of unity and community today like you had back then. I realized that wasn't everyone, but there was a sense of all working together towards a greater purpose. Yes, uh, it's the gay I'm, liberation front because we were intersectional as well. We work with the Panthers, we work with the Young Lords, we, the, the women from the Gay Liberation Front worked on the breakfast programs on the Lower East Side with the Panthers and, and with the women who would then become the Salsa Soul Sisters, which were the women who left both the Panthers and the Young Lords and did exactly what radical lesbians did when we left the, uh, you know, the gay men behind. It's like, and that's the GAA, but we can talk about that later. What yeah. happened? We got a lot, a lot left to discuss. Um, uh, so um, I want to take you off that string for a second. And you know, Huey Newton, who uh, was the co-founder and of the Black Panther Party and a, a revolutionary black activist, uh, and that movement at the time was not considered very gay-friendly, if they even thought about gays at all. And I know that he made a speech in 1970 that shocked the world by stating that gays were the most revolutionary of all people and urging the Panthers and all groups to work with us. 
Uh, were you present when when he said that, or what was your experience with that? That was at the uh, Constitutional Convention. Um, we were going to rewrite the Constitution. It was all of the most radical people. Uh, m most of the Gay Liberation Front were there at that convention. Um, the other thing that was very important is not only did he talk about gays being the most revolutionary, but he talked about working with women and, and respecting women in the movement. Because um, I forgot what his name was, but said the only place for a woman was prone. Um, and in the movement was prone. And at that time in the 70s, the Gay Liberation Front was one of the few mixed groups that in any way allowed women to be part, uh, full participatory members. Um, now, the women understood why black women were a little reticent to join the feminists or anything like that because their men had been so beaten down by society and they were wanted to elevate their men. And so we, the women understood that, but, um, you know, it was really an amazing thing that Huey with all these macho, you know, Panthers would make such a speech. And it was, it was shocking to everyone. Now what happened was, and that the reason I bring up the convention is that, most of the men wanted nothing to do with any of the workshops that would have women in them or whatever. So the reason the whole thing fell apart, that convention fell apart, was the women left. The women, all black women, white women, we all we all left. Said the hell with all you. So that's what happened to that. Um, the young lords did have a gay cell within the young lords. So they were the first ones to really, I think, have a consciousness about that many of their Puerto Rican members were gay. And that's why I would go to Yoruba Guzman the day, the night before the march, which is a whole oh, story. I'll have you tell that story a little later. But the, so the young lords was a uh, Puerto Rican, mostly male organization? Or uh, oh no, the women worked on the breast. They they worked on the breakfast programs and things okay. like that, tutoring, preschool. Right. You know, because we we really tried to help these children that of both the Black Panthers and the Young Lords on the Lower East Side and Harlem everywhere. So the women from the Gay Liberation Front were very active in in those with those working with Cassie Grant and those women, including our New York City mayor's wife at the time, who was, was a lesbian then. Was that Beam, a Beam? No, 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 de Blasio, his wife. Oh, wow, you mean, oh, really? Okay, wow. So um, let's take you to where you will bring in the Young Lords again. Um, please describe how, you know, Stonewall took place in 69, you weren't yet out. By December, you were part of the gay activist community. The following June, the first parade, the first gay pride march in commemoration of Stonewall took place. Uh, can you describe how that was planned and how it unfolded? There's a kind of an anecdote that I'd love for you to share with us. Well, you know, the whole thing was actions. Every, you know, it had actions that took place in the street. And we decided that, and there was another, the man that owned the, um, Christopher Street uh, Bookstore was also very instrumental 
in working with us around planning this, you know, Christopher Street Liberation Day march. That's what it was called. Is it Craig Rodwell? Yeah. Yes. I, I knew Craig. Uh, I used to go as a young newbie in New York to buy books every three or four months. And he was the most amazing guy. And we were both were Chicago Cub fans. I never had an idea. He never even shared with me that he was one of the earliest and most active members of the gay activist oh, yes. organization. I, I mean, I, he knew Martha Shelley and, and, and Ellen Broidy and uh, Linda Rhodes, who had actually were students at NYU and had planned that first march, which right. not too many people paid attention to. So by the time in March of 1970, while we were doing planning the, you know, Lavender Menace action, we were also all busy planning. We were going to have, we were going to march and we were going to march. We were going to originally march up Fifth Avenue, but we figured that might cause too much problems. And the police, uh, it was a mess. You know, they, they said, oh, you can march on the sidewalk from Christopher Street on to Sixth Avenue, whatever. But, you know, the basic thing was we made posters, we made leaflets, put them all, all through the community saying, on the anniversary of Stonewall, we are going to march from Christopher Street up to Central Park. Right. Come join us. There was a, they just said, come join us. Not too many people did. Well, how, how many people showed up and kind of walk us through the fact that that was a pretty bold move, considering you had no support from anyone and the way people looked at gays at the time. Because by June, and that's another thing we're going to have to discuss, the lesbians had closed the mafia bars. We were their cash cow. Now, the guys, they were doing it everywhere, the piers, the trucks, you know. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't need to go to a bar in order, a mafia bar anyway, to meet other men. But lesbians, you know, we're, we're going to hang around the trucks waiting for another lesbian. So we had, now you got to remember, we had closed the mafia bar. Okay. Now there was, you know, the mafia knew that there was all this uprising and that there was going to be more coming their way. The police were paid off by the mafia, you know, to stay. I don't know why they ever raided Stonewall. That's something you're going to have somebody who was involved in the police department. I have no idea how well, that occurred. Rumors are that the owners of Stonewall had not paid off the police that evening. Oh, then there you go. Okay, so they hadn't paid the police. Everybody's in on it, the mafia, the police. Um, and so, and gays at that time were thought of as mentally ill, criminals, um, the Catholic Church was everything, evangelicals. I mean, we were considered like, you know, just the worst of the worst. I mean, we, the Panthers were treated better than we were. So, you know, it was like we were told point blank by the police that they would not protect us because the mafia, you know, they ran everything. And we, we said, we're going to do it. We're going to march. And I remember my mother saying to me, they're going to kill you. And I said, I would rather die marching for, in the streets for what I believe in than live a lie. And that was the attitude of all of us. So what was, there were all, we were a small group of people. I mean, so what happened was we got these other, you know, students for the Democratic Society. There were some, I think Rutgers sent a group of people. A lot of the people that originally began the march up Sixth Avenue, if you look at that 
if you, there are tapes of it, you can see there's probably only about a hundred people as we moved down Christopher Street. But what happened was, as we started marching, first we were over on the sort of on the side. We took over all of Sixth Avenue. By the time we got to 30th Street, more and more people had started joining us, and. By the time we got to Central Park, it was like unbelievable. When you see that crowd, and of course, a lot of people waited in Central Park for us, but it was exhilarating. When we stepped off onto Sixth Avenue, we knew we were risking our lives. There were no police in sight anywhere. And uh, uh, you had asked me to talk about this the night before I had gone to Yoruba Guzman, who was the leader of the Young Lords, because I had worked with them. We, we had these councils, they were called councils, and representatives from all the different groups would meet, Panthers, Young Lords, Gay Liberation Front. Um, and I went to Yoruba and I said, Yoruba, do you think that you and some of your men could just stand along Sixth Avenue? And if you see anything, take care of <laughs> So sure enough, the day we're gonna march, these young, strapping Puerto Rican boys who were all straight came down and stood there, you know, very much like what the you know guardian angels would do later in life. But it was thanks to them that that was our only protection and nothing, nothing bad happened. Um, but as many of us said in, in interviews later, we had no idea we could have all been killed. We didn't know, but we were so angry and so, you know, and... What was really sweet is that when we got to this tourist park, you know, around 42nd Street, children thought that the drag queens were clowns and like, oh, mom, look at the clowns. And so all families started. <laughs> Nobody know what, knew what this parade was, but everybody wants to be in the parade. So it was wonderful. That first one was just it was magical. It really was. Unlike some of the other ones, which um, we'll talk about that later. But yeah. Just just to be clear, the reason why you needed to go to, what's his, what's his name, Guzman? Yoruba Guzman. Yoruba Guzman was because the police had told you in no uncertain terms that they were not going to provide any protection. And you knew, no. that was because, you knew that was because you had pissed off the mafia, right? And, and, yeah. and the mafia wanted the lesbians. Right. So now, let me just take you to uh, how the lesbians end up being responsible for the end of the mafia payouts uh, with the gay bars. Well, the gay, I mean, that's the other thing that young people don't understand at all. It was so abusive. It was just so humiliating to go to a, a, a bar as a lesbian. And that was about the only place you could meet other lesbians openly and know that they were lesbians. So, and hope that they weren't a policewoman. Um, so you would walk in and there would be these, usually two big mafiosos sitting, you know, there, it was cost money. They would charge you a lot of money to get in. In those days, I mean, a lot of women didn't have, you know, like $5, $10, whatever. You'd get in and the drinks were exorbitant. They were, they were very expensive. And especially this one place, Cookies, uh, you'd be drinking your drink and she'd put her finger in your drink. She'd say, it's warm. And she'd grab the drink and, you know, you had to buy another drink. You couldn't dance. You couldn't, it, it was just, and these men standing it just was awful 
So the women of the Gay Liberation Front, this is one of our, right away, we're like, we're going to end this crap. And so because I'm Italian, and there's another woman, Flavia Rando, who was also Italian, Gay Liberation Front decided that we were going to be the people who were going to make the leaflets stand outside of these mafia bars and hand out the leaflets to women as they were going in to come to our dance which was right down on 14th Street and 6th Avenue at Alternate U. So, you know, first of all, we get there, and, you know, we're panning up, and they come running, the mafioso come out. And I'm like, non toca, io sono sangue, which means don't touch me, I'm blood. And when I say, io sono sangue, that's real, you know, <laughs> calabrese, you know. So <laughs> they didn't know. I could have been Carlo Gambino's daughter for all they knew. So they like backed off on us. But, you know, the women were all taking these folders. Well, it took a, it took probably about, and we went to the Gianni's, the Sea Colony. We hit every mafia bar there was. And these women all started coming to our dances. So one night, you know, we're, we're really going strong and, and the bars are pretty much empty. You know, the lesbian bars are practically empty. They're not making any money. So I'm standing at, the, at alternate U. There was long stairs. You could, you know, you had to climb up this long flight of stairs. And I'm standing at the top and we're, you know, taking the money, greeting everyone. And I see the guns. That's the first thing I see. I see the man and I see the guns. So I see them coming up the stairs. I grabbed the cash box. I slammed it shut. I turned around, I handed it to Donna Gottschalk, and I said to her, put this in a garbage bag and run down the back stairs as fast as you can. So they come up, and they're all like, you know, all puffed up and everything. And so, you know, they're, I said, can I help you, gentlemen? We're cool as a cucumber. Can I help you, gentlemen? Oh, where's the money? We want the money. Blah, blah, blah. I said, well, I said, we don't charge anything. It's free. He goes, well, what about the beer? I said, no, I said, everything's donated. I said, would you like a beer? Would you... <laughs> I said, you're welcome to stay and dance if you like. <laughs> We're just treating them like they're the biggest, and, and they're brandishing the guns. So they make the mistake of going over to Martha Shelley. <laughs> so they, they go over to Martha figuring, oh, we'll intimidate her, right? So they go, they go, do you know who we are? So Martha goes, no, I don't care. Do you know who we are? We're the Gay Liberation Front. So <laughs> they turn around, they go down the stairs, and I yell at them. Next time, send your sisters. <laughs> and that was the end of the mafia harassing the lesbians. We closed their bars. That was it. And then bars that were owned by women opened up, like um, uh, Bonnie and Clyde's. It, it, that was by Elaine Romagnoli. Probably had mafia connections. I don't know. Um, and then, you know, the, uh, Henrietta Hudson and all the other bars, which were basically owned by women, and had women bartenders and were nice places to go and meet a woman. <laughs> I dare say there aren't very many other instances where people could say they got the best of the mafia. So congratulations. Yeah. And not just that, but humiliated them. When Martha said, no, I don't know who you are and I don't care. <laughs> that was great. Well, this this has been, uh, an, uh, I don't even know what the right word is, illuminating and fascinating uh, walk down memory lane. Michaela, thank you so much for sharing this lore with us um, and giving us all insight into how it wasn't very easy, but you got it done.
Thank you, Mike. And, you know, I just want to say one other thing. Um, in 2009, I was asked to speak at the public library. It's, it's on record there as well. And it was about, you know, our history and, and things like that. And I, I started my talk with an African proverb that until the lions have their historians, the tales will always be those of the hunter. And I feel like now we're actually getting to tell our story while we're still alive. Because honest to God, Mike, there probably are only 15 people who are who actually planned and marched in that first march that are still alive. So I'm glad we're, we all have a chance to get our stories out now. That's why I'm grateful for your willingness to tell that story to us. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed part one of my interview with Michaela Griffo. Part two will follow next. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, Justin Winnick, and Matteo Nicola. For more stories, go to bammer.co. If you'd like to contribute a story from your life, contact me at mike at bammer.co.